Chapter Twenty Five of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Roger Moline. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty Five. That in the lust and passion of his designs and the arrogance of his power. John Graham was not afraid to overstep all law and order, and that he believed Holt would shelter Mary Standish from injury and death, there could no longer be a doubt after the first few swift moments following Sequena's rifle shots from the attic window. Through the window of the lower room, barricaded by the cautious old warrior until its aperture was not more than eight inches square, Alan thrust his rifle as the crash of gunfire broke the gray and thickening mist of night. He could hear the thud and hiss of bullets. He heard them singing like angry bees as they passed with the swiftness of chain lightning over the cabin roof, and their patter against the log walls was like the hollow drumming of knuckles against the side of a ripe watermelon. There was something fascinating and almost gentle about that last sound. It did not seem that the horror of death was riding with it, and Alan lost all sense of fear as he stared in the direction from which the firing came, trying to make out shadows at which to shoot. Here and there he saw dim, white streaks, and at these he fired as fast as he could throw cartridges into the chamber and pull the trigger. Then he crouched down with the empty gun. It was Mary Standish who held out a freshly loaded weapon to him. Her face was waxen in its deathly pallor. Her eyes, staring at him so strangely, never for an instant leaving his face, were lustrous with the agony of fear that flamed in their depths. She was not afraid for herself. It was for him. His name was on her lips, a whisper unspoken, a breathless prayer, and in that instant a bullet sped through the opening in front of which he had stood a moment before a hissing, writhing serpent of death that struck something behind them in its venomous wrath. With a cry, she flung up her arms about his bent head. "'My God, they will kill you if you stand there,' she moaned. "'Give me up to them, Alan. If you love me, give me up.' A sudden spurt of white dust shot out into the dim candle-glow, and then another, so near Nawad looked that his blood went cold. Bullets were finding their way through the moss and earth chinking between the logs of the cabin. His arms closed in a fierce embrace about the girl's slim body, and before she could realize what was happening, he leaped to the trap with her and almost flung her into its protection. Then he forced Nawad look down beside her, and after them he thrust in the empty gun and the apron with its weight of cartridges. His face was demonic in its command. If you don't stay there, I'll open the door and go outside to fight. Do you understand? Stay there. His clenched fist was in their faces, his voice almost a shout. He saw another white spurt of dust. The bullet crashed in tinware, and following the crash came a shriek from Keok in the attic. In that upper gloom, Sequena's gun had fallen with a clatter. The old warrior bent himself over, nearly double and with his two withered hands was clutching his stomach. He was on his knees, and his breath suddenly came in a panting, gasping cry. Then he straightened slowly and said something reassuring to Keok, 
and faced the window again with the gun which she had loaded for him. The scream had scarcely gone from Keok's lips when Alan was at the top of the ladder, calling her. She came to him through the stark blackness of the room, sobbing that Sequena was hit, and Alan reached out and seized her and dragged her down and placed her with Nawadluk and Mary Standish. From them he turned to the window, and his soul cried out madly for the power to see, to kill, to avenge. As if in answer to this prayer for light and vision, he saw his cabin strangely illuminated. Dancing, yellow, radiant silhouetted the windows, and a stream of it billowed out through an open door into the night. It was so bright he could see the rain mist, scarcely heavier than a dense, slowly descending fog, a wet blanket of vapor moistening the earth. His heart jumped as with each second the blaze of light increased. They had set fire to his cabin. They were no longer white men, but savages. He was terribly cool, even as his heart throbbed so violently. He watched with the eyes of a deadly hunter, wide open over his rifle barrel. Sequena was still. Probably he was dead. Keok was sobbing in the cellar pit. Then he saw a shape growing in the illumination, three or four of them, moving, alive. He waited until they were clearer, and he knew what they were thinking, that the bullet-riddled cabin had lost its power to fight. He prayed God it was Graham he was aiming at, and fired. The figure went down, sank into the earth as a dead man falls. Steadily he fired at the others, one, two, three, four, and two out of the four he hit, and the exultant thought flashed upon him that it was good shooting under the circumstances. He sprang back for another gun, and it was Mary who was waiting for him, head and shoulders out of the cellar pit, the rifle in her hands. She was sobbing as she looked straight at him, yet without moisture or tears in her eyes. "'Keep down,' he warned. "'Keep down below the floor.' He guessed what was coming. He had shown his enemies that life still existed in the cabin, life with death in its hands, and now, from the shelter of the other cabins, from the darkness, from beyond the light of his flaming home, the rifle fire continued to grow until it filled the night with a horrible din. He flung himself face down upon the floor so that the lower log of the building protected him. No living thing could have stood up against what was happening in these moments. Bullets tore through the windows and between the moss-chinked logs, crashing against metal and glass and tinware. One of the candles sputtered and went out, and in this hell Alan heard a cry and saw Mary Standish coming out of the cellar pit toward him. He had flung himself down quickly, and she thought he was hit. He shrieked at her, and his heart froze with horror as he saw a heavy tress of her hair drop to the floor as she stood there in that frightful moment, white and glorious in the face of the gunfire. Before she could move another step, he was at her side, and with her in his arms leaped into the pit. A bullet sang over them. He crushed her so close that for a breath or two life seemed to leave her body. A sudden draft of cool air struck his face. He missed Nawadluk. In the deeper gloom farther under the floor he heard her moving and saw a faint square of light. She was creeping back. 
Her hands touched his arm. "'We can get away, there,' she cried in a low voice. "'I have opened the little door. We can crawl through it and into the ravine.' Her words and the square of light were an inspiration. He had not dreamed that Graham would turn the cabin into a death hole, and Nowadlook's words filled him with a sudden thrilling hope. The rifle fire was dying away again as he gave voice to his plan in sharp, swift words. He would hold the cabin. As long as he was there, Graham and his men would not dare to rush it. At least they would hesitate a considerable time before doing that. And meanwhile the girls could steal down into the ravine. There was no one on that side to intercept them, and both Keok and Nawadlook were well acquainted with the trails into the mountains. It would mean safety for them. He would remain in the cabin and fight until Stampede Smith and the herdsmen came. The white face against his breast was cold and almost expressionless. Something in it frightened him. He knew his argument had failed and that Mary Standish would not go, yet she did not answer him, nor did her lips move in the effort. Go, for their sakes, if not for your own and mine, he insisted holding her away from him. Good God, think what it would mean if beasts like those out there get hold of Keok and Nawadlook. Graham is your husband and will protect you for himself, but for them there will be no hope, no salvation, nothing but a fate more terrible than death. They will be like, like two beautiful lambs thrown among wolves, broken, destroyed. Her eyes were burning with horror. Keok was sobbing, and a moan which she bravely tried to smother in her breast came from Nawadlook. "'And you,' whispered Mary. "'I must remain here. It is the only way.' Dumbly she allowed him to lead her back with Keok and Nawadlook. Keok went through the opening first, then Nawadlook, and Mary Standish last. She did not touch him again. She made no movement toward him and said no word, and all he remembered of her when she was gone in the gloom was her eyes. In that last look she had given him her soul, and no whisper, no farewell caress came with it. "'Go cautiously until you are out of the ravine, then hurry toward the mountains,' were his last words. He saw their forms fade into dim shadows, and the gray mist swallowed them. He hurried back, seized a loaded gun, and sprang to the window, knowing that he must continue to deal death until he was killed. Only in that way could he hold Graham back and give those who had escaped a chance for their lives. Cautiously he looked out over his gun barrel. His cabin was a furnace red with flame. Streams of fire were licking out at the windows and through the door, and as he sought vainly for a movement of life, the crackling roar of it came to his ears, and so swiftly that his breath choked him. The pitch-filled walls became sheets of conflagration until the cabin was a seething, red-hot torch of fire whose illumination was more dazzling than the sun of day. Out into this illumination suddenly stalked a figure waving a white sheet at the end of a long pole. It advanced slowly a little hesitatingly at first, as if doubtful of what might happen, and then it stopped, full in the light, an easy mark for a rifle aimed from Sequena's cabin. 
He saw who it was then, and drew in his rifle and watched the unexpected maneuver in amazement. The man was Rossland. In spite of the dramatic tenseness of the moment, Alan could not repress the grim smile that came to his lips. Rossland was a man of illogical resource, he meditated. Only a short time ago he had fled ignominiously through fear of personal violence, while now, with a courage that could not fail to rouse admiration, he was exposing himself to a swift and sudden death, protected only by the symbol of truce over his head. That he owed this symbol either regard or honor did not for an instant possess Alan. A murderer held it a man even more vile than a murderer if such a creature existed on earth, and for such a man death was a righteous end. Only Rossland's nerve, and what he might have to say, held back the vengeance within reach of Alan's hand. He waited, and Rossland again advanced and did not stop until he was within a hundred feet of the cabin. A sudden disturbing thought flashed upon Alan as he heard his name called. He had seen no other figures, no other shadows beyond Rossland, and the burning cabin now clearly illuminated the windows of Sequina's place. Was it conceivable that Rossland was merely a lure, and the instant he exposed himself in a parley of score of hidden rifles would reveal their treachery? He shuddered and held himself below the opening of the window. Graham and his men were more than capable of such a crime. Rossland's voice rose above the crackle and roar of the burning cabin. "'Alan Holt! Are you there?' "'Yes, I am here,' shouted Alan. "'And I have a line on your heart, Rossland, and my finger is on the trigger. What do you want?' There was a moment of silence, as if the thought of what he was facing had at last stricken Rossland dumb. Then he said, "'We are giving you a last chance, Holt.' For God's sake, don't be a fool. The offer I made you today is still good. If you don't accept it, the law must take its course. The law, Alan's voice was a savage cry. Yes, the law. The law is with us. We have the proper authority to recover a stolen wife, a captive, a prisoner held in restraint with felonious intent. But we don't want to press the law unless we are forced to do so. You and the old Eskimo have killed three of our men and wounded two others. That means the hangman if we take you alive. But we are willing to forget that if you will accept the offer I made you today. What do you say? Alan was stunned. Speech failed him as he realized the monstrous assurance with which Graham and Rossland were playing their game. And when he made no answer... Rossland continued to drive home his arguments, believing that at last Alan was at the point of surrender. Up in the dark attic, the voices had come like ghostland whispers to old Sequena. He lay huddled at the window, and the chill of death was creeping over him. But the voices roused him. They were not strange voices, but voices which came up out of the past of many years ago, calling upon him, urging him, persisting in his ears with cries of vengeance and of triumph, the call of familiar names, a moaning of women, a sobbing of children. Shadowy hands helped him, and a last time he raised himself to the window, and his eyes were filled with the glare of the burning cabin. 
he struggled to lift his rifle, and behind him he heard the exultation of his people as he rested it over the sill and with gasping breath leveled it at something which moved between him and the blazing light of that wonderful sun which was the burning cabin. And then, slowly and with difficulty, he pressed the trigger, and Sequina's last shot sped on its mission. At the sound of the shot, Alan looked through the window. For a moment, Rosalind stood motionless. Then the pole in his hands wavered, drooped, and fell to the earth, and Rosalind sank down after it, making no sound, and lay a dark and huddled blot on the ground. The appalling swiftness and ease with which Rosalind had passed from life into death shocked every nerve in Alan's body. Horror for a brief space stupefied him, and he continued to stare at the dark and motionless blot, forgetful of his own danger, while a grim and terrible silence followed the shot. And then what seemed to be a single cry broke that silence, though it was made up of many men's voices. Deadly and thrilling, it was a message that set Alan into action. Rosalind had been killed under a flag of truce, and even the men under Graham had something like respect for that symbol. He could expect no mercy, nothing now but the most terrible of vengeance at their hands, and as he dodged back from the window, he cursed Sequena under his breath, even as he felt the relief of knowing he was not dead. Before a shot had been fired from outside, he was up the ladder. In another moment, he was bending over the huddled form of the old Eskimo. "'Come below,' he commanded. "'We must be ready to leave through the cellar pit.' His hand touched Sequena's face. It hesitated, groped in the darkness, and then grew still over the old warrior's heart. There was no tremor or beat of life in the aged beast. Sequena was dead. The guns of Graham's men opened fire again. Volley after volley crashed into the cabin as Alan descended the ladder. He could hear bullets tearing through the chinks and windows as he turned quickly to the shelter of the pit. He was amazed to find that Mary Standish had returned and was waiting for him there. End of chapter 25 Recording by Roger Moline